Amen. What a great king he is. Hope you know that. Grab a Bible. Make your way this morning. We're going to be in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. Sunday mornings, we're making our way through the book of Daniel verse by verse, and we find ourselves here and hoping you're on the same page with us. Hope you got a Bible and you're opening. For you guys who are joining us online, we equally just invite you into this. Hope you got a Bible, whether it's physical or you're opening it up on an electronic device. Either way, join us so that you're with us, seeing, following, hoping that God would speak to us through His Word this morning in a way that makes both just clarity and sense into each one of our lives. Now, quick FYI, this morning we are going to cover the entirety of Daniel chapter 5. Now, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. We're just going to make that clear to you. I mean, covering a whole chapter on a Sunday morning can be difficult for us, but the simple issue is that there was just no easy way to divide it. I mean, I looked at it, thought, you know, is there a way? It really is a story that flows together in its entirety, so we kind of need the whole thing to, to follow along with the account, so that is exactly what we're going to do. But just to be honest, again, that's challenging, and it's going to have to leave some things out. Like, there might be pieces you're like, I want to know more about that, or I you know, wish we could have talked more about that. Hey, we'd love to do that. <laughs> Come up and ask us. Talk to me about it. We'd talk to any one of us. We'd love to just partner in it. But that said, we want to see the whole thing this morning, and so may God give us help to do that. With that as a name, let's ask Him. Would you join me in prayer? Let's ask that God would give us the ability to hear His voice this morning. God, right now, Your Word is before us, and I'm grateful for that. At the same moment, I just want to humble myself and ask, oh Lord, would you speak to us? Would you take your truth, which is solid and firm, that you said is a light in a dark place, would you help it to be light into our lives? Would you help it to be light into our world? Father, would you meet us individually right now so that we hear you? Whatever needs to happen, if that's just physically, just being strengthened emotionally, spiritually, would you meet us and open up our eyes? Would you give us the ability for our perspective to be just clear and changed and even being transformed by you? God, would you work that here? Would you give us ears to hear what you're saying today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the handwriting is on the wall. Yeah, that phrase, well, it's found in our text this morning. In fact, it's the origin of that phrase. Most of you recognize it. You would hear it used in kind of a common vernacular where people will say, hey, the handwriting's on the wall. But maybe you know, maybe you didn't know. It all begins here. That's the origination of that, that account. And it is that reality that we want to talk about this morning. What is that space? And even what is God saying in this ominous phrase? And it is ominous. The handwriting is on the wall. Well, before we begin to directly work through the text, it would be helpful to set a little bit of bounds, set a little bit of a, a background scenery so that you can understand where we are that will help us kind of get there. The thing you need to understand, first of all, is it's actually been around 23 years since the end of chapter 4 to chapter 5. From where we were in the midst of that to where we are now, much has changed uh, in the midst of this. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. He reigns for just about a little over 40 years. His, his reign is there in the midst of that, but he passes. And then everything goes crazy. Babylon enters just a, a really rough season where much happens over the next 20 years. His son, uh, evil Merak reigned from 562 to 560 BC. Yes, that's actually his name. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, but it's just that, that just all by itself is like, okay, that's not going to be a good king. He was not. It was a mess. It was a really yucky two years, full of confusion, full of turmoil. He ends up being assassinated uh, by his brother-in-law, the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who reigns from 560 to 556, another four years of confusion. It's, again, just turmoil in the midst of all of that. He ends up being, again, overthrown by a group of people that end up putting Nabonidus on the throne, and he will reign, you know, from 556 to 539 B.C. He's the one who's over there. There's actually another short reign between him and and uh, Nagalasar, who's about two-month reign, but I didn't even go into it because that doesn't really count. It was just a mess. All that to say, these 20 years have been a, a really difficult time in the nation, in the kingdom of Babylon, 
but now it's over. Yeah, in 539 BC, that really is where Babylon's going to end. Nabonidus is the last king over Babylon as it transitions, and that's where we are. We're in that scene where much has happened. Now, that's just a little snapshot of history. There's much more there, and for some of you, you're, you're, you're curious, and it's worth finding out on your own and, and, and grabbing that, but for others, that's enough to kind of get us there. But maybe one of the things we need to understand in the midst of that is where Daniel is. Yeah, this book is about Daniel, and if we put the math together, we would have to come to the assumption that he's right about 78 years old. Now, if you do the math, that's about 605 B.C. when he was taken from you know, Israel uh, to Babylon. If we say that was 12 years of age, that would be 78. If he was older than that, you can do the math. Either way, Daniel's definitely kind of entering into that phase of life, kind of getting into that place, and that's where he is in this chapter. Well, leaving that, again, we think through just things that are here. There's things that we, we process in the midst of that. So we see this place where Daniel's there. He's been there, you know, in the midst of this. Now the king comes on the scene, and its name is also Belshazzar. Well, notice with me what it says in verse 1. Just first three words, Belshazzar the king. Now, pause. Wait a second, Jim. I thought you said Nabopolassar was the last king of Babylon. He is. Belshazzar is the second ruler in Babylon. He, in this space and time, is co-regent under Nabonidus. Nabonidus is over the entire kingdom. Uh, Belshazzar, he is kind of the low, he's taking care of Babylon. He's the one administrating the kingdom. In days without technology and you know, fast moving, Nabonidus, is, is, he's out around everywhere, and he has appointed Belshazzar to be a second ruler. Now, that will be helpful even as we work through the text, because Belshazzar is going to offer the third ruler to the kingdom of Babylon. He's going to make that, and part of he's like, well, why the third ruler? Well, that's because he's second in the midst of that. Quick FYI, actually for hundreds of years, thousands, sometimes people debated, you know, how accurate this was. Some of the history that had found had even questioned, you know, is there such a man as Belshazzar? But please understand this, uh, the Bible is accurate. <laughs> the Bible is cruel, and hi history will always catch up to it. Archaeology will always kept to up to it, and that's exactly what happened. In 1881, what was known as the Nabonidus Cylinder was found. And in that cylinder that is even now on display at the British Museum, Museum in London, it talks about all of this. talks about how Nabonidus is the king over Babylon, but Belshazzar is his kind of regent king under him, just handling Babylon. And again, just fun for us to recognize that the Bible is always true, and, and it definitely is verified here. So Belshazzar's there. He's going to be the king that, that reigns in the midst of this, and the, the man that we're watching in this chapter at the same moment, I need to come back and just say again what I said a moment ago. In this chapter, Babylon comes to an end. The nation, the kingdom of Babylon that has been on the scene for a little less than 100 years, it has been a glorious empire. God described it even in the image in Daniel chapter 2 of a, of a head of gold, both in its power and its dominion. But at the end of this chapter, it's over. The Medo-Persian Empire comes on the scene. Babylon moves off of it. They are conquered. We actually know the exact date from historical records. This chapter takes place on October 12th, 539 B.C. This day is that space where they are conquered, where Babylon moves off the scene and the Persian Empire comes on. Now, as we think about that, again, it's worth us just understanding that this has been biblically prophesied. Jeremiah Isaiah, they've spoken of this, spoken of this day, of all that would happen and everything that would take place in the midst of that, all that has brought us to this place. And again, that's certainly happening. And that's a little bit in the backdrop. Now, before we dive past that, I want to just speak very, very clearly. Though we are understanding that, though there is a sense of the end of an empire in this chapter, an end of a, of a nation and a kingdom, it really isn't the focus of the chapter. The chapter isn't focused on the, the nation as it's focused on Belshazzar, and that's exactly where we're going to go. Now, I say that for a lot of reasons, but for much of it, I just want to speak very clearly. You guys know where we live. It's a weird space where politics is, is in every conversation. Every, you, know, you watch the news and you watch everything that's there, and I just want to speak very clearly. I'm not talking about that. 
We're not here to talk politics. I don't want you to read into anything I'm saying where you're thinking, I wonder if he's saying, you know, I wonder if he's kind of making some jab. I wonder if he's, you know, insinuating. I'm not. I mean, that is not, that is not my focus. I mean, I don't think that's where we are, and I don't think that this is really about us as a nation. I don't think it's really about the midst of that. Wherever God would want to apply, he can take his word and do that. But let's just be, at least from my heart to you, clear. I'm not talking about it. I mean, that's, that's not what this chapter is about. Now, for some of you, you're disappointed. You're like, man, I wanted him to talk about it. But then others of you are like, oh, phew, I am so tired of talking about these kinds of things, and so am I, but it's just not the focus of the chapter. It's not really what the, the, the focus is. Instead, this chapter is not about the nation. It's about the man. It's about Belshazzar. It's about what God is doing in his life, and God is seeking to intersect his life, and he's going to do that. So that's going to be our focus. Now, if you haven't already read the chapter or you don't already know, let me also be entirely clear. It's not going to go well. I mean, it's not, you know, this is one of those chapters where God is going to work in the midst of, of this in Belshazzar's life, but it's going to end poorly. He's not going to respond well. I hope that I'm not kind of like, you know, destroying the story before we get there, but at the same moment, I want you to feel it. Because there's something in the way that God lays out the book of Daniel that really is a contrast between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. In both of these, we have kings who are reigning, and yet God intersects both of their lives in incredible ways. In Daniel chapter 4, which we talked about last week, and for some of you, you were here when we talked about it even before that, where we saw God work in a way that brought Nebuchadnezzar to an end of himself, and he humbles himself, and he believes, and he acknowledges that God is the God of the, of the heavens. It's a glorious scene. Well, it's going to go the other way in this chapter. And certainly there's a little bit of contrast between that, and that should be understood. So with that as a name, telling you that I think that's what the chapter is about, then I want to say very clearly, that's my target this morning. If I have a target, if I have somebody that I'm speaking to, then I'm speaking to Belshazzar today. I want to talk to somebody who's in that exact place. Maybe you're here in this room, Maybe you're on our overflow. Maybe you're online. I just want to be very clear. Boy, I'm, I, just, I believe God's pursuing Belshazzar, and I believe he's pursuing you. And if you're in this place where that's not where you are, I hope you hear it this morning in a way of pursuit. I hope you hear it in a way that you will see the folly of the way this man responds. And you respond differently. So that's my clear aim. Now, there's going to be talk, stuff we talk about. It's going to affect all of us. It's going to be good for all of us. But before we end... We're going to come back and speak to many of us who were not Belshazzar. Maybe we were. We're not. God's got a hold of our lives now. But we want to talk about how to speak into that. How, maybe as we talk about Belshazzar, you're going to recognize, I know that person. <laughs> I know him. I know her. That's who they are. They are this person that is fighting and, and God's pursuing. And we want to see that in a way that will both help us, both to see God's pursuit and how we get to be a part of it. So that's where we're going. May God give us clarity. May God help us to get there. So now let's meet him. Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, verse 1 there, uh, he gives it to us. He says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So here you are. It's that first moment, the first time you ever get to meet Belshazzar, God gives us an image that just right off the bat shows a man who's living indulgently, who's living this indulgent life in many ways. And as you watch this party that he's throwing for a thousand of his lords, drinking wine, getting drunk, as it goes on to say in the text, well, that's interesting as God just lays that out as a beginning, but it's also important to kind of catch the scene. I've already told you. The Medes and the Persians, they're at the gates. Historically, they've been defeating Babylon. They've been conquering them out on the, on the fields, the military places. They've conquered a lot of outlying towns, and right now they're outside the gates. The army is camped. The Medes and the Persians are right there, kind of, you know, getting ready, trying to attack Babylon. And the question that we have to ask is, why is Belshazzar throwing a party right now. I mean, what's happening? Now, to be honest, we don't have that clarity in the text. So anything we do is a guess, but let's make a couple of guesses. 
It could be that he is just incredibly overconfident. It could be that he's having a party almost in a way of thumbing his nose at the Medo-Persians because many in that day believed that Babylon was unconquerable. It was a massive city laid out with multiple walls that guarded the city. The outside wall was 350 feet high, so wide that they had chariot races on top of the wall. 250 towers numbered that. It seemed to be an impregnable city. On top of that, they had such stores that people said they probably could have lasted 20 years without ever having to open the gates. And it could be that Belshazzar was saying, we're fine. (laughs) And this could be his kind of arrogant, overconfident, just kind of statement against the Medo-Persians. Now, if he did that, it was foolish because this night the city's going to fall. Now, the the Persian Empire is going to come. They're going to divert the Euphrates River that's flowing under the north gate out the south of the city. They're going to divert the river and they're going to come in under the gates and they're going to conquer the city. And they're going to find the city unprepared. That if their overconfidence was there, they, they, they could have been at the, at, you know, defending the city, but they find them for the most part totally not ready for this army. So it could have been overconfidence. If it was, it was foolish. Or maybe he actually knew it was coming. Maybe he actually looked out there and knew that Babylon was done and that he could see just, you know, all that was happening in the midst of this. And so he's being fatalistic and he's just being absolutely foolish. Maybe he's kind of got that attitude. It's like, hey, if we're going to go out, we're going to go out with a bang. You know, eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Either way, no matter what we do, it's a foolish way to live. It's, a, it's this folly that's living this indulgent life right in the face of everything that's happening, that the way that he's processing this is moving him to a sinful lifestyle that's incredibly ugly, but it gets worse. Verse 2, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Yeah, not only is he living this indulgent lifestyle, he's living a blasphemous lifestyle. Like, it's crazy to kind of imagine what he does here. He literally goes and gets, you know, these vessels that belonged to the temple that God had called the Jews to create. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered them, and those had been kept in storage. But now, in this moment, he's like, go and get them. (laughs) Go and get all those things that God declared, and not in any way honoring them for what they are, they begin drinking wine from them. And they're gold vessels. For any of you guys who know your kind of Old Testament history, the gold ones were specifically meant for God. Any of the vessels in the, in the temple and the tabernacle, those were the things that were about God's presence and, and His glory. And they're drinking wine from them. I mean, there's something that is incredibly just mocking, it's irreverent, it's desecrating, it's just, be me, just besmirching God in incredibly ugly ways. Now, as you watch this, I want to just tell you that this is something that's significant, and yet there's much that's happening I have no time to entirely unpack, except to tell you there's a war. There's a war against God in this world. There's a war that was taking place then that's taking place now that the prince of the power of the air, Satan, he's working in our world as an assault against God. So it shouldn't be surprising, but at the same moment, we should see it. We should make sure that we understand when when people take the things that belong to God, when they take the things of his name and his gifts and they mock him, it's, it's more than just some random occasional thing. It's really a spiritual war. Now, it was happening then, it's happening now. Happens in our world in so many ways. We could talk about this the rest of the morning, but let's just quickly say a few. Does it ever shock you that people take God's name and make it a cuss word? I mean, that today there are going to be people that say God and then put some expletive after it, and it's their way of cussing. 
that today someone's going to take the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, and they're going to utter it not as a reverent term, but they're going to say Jesus Christ as a cuss word. Does it ever shock you that that's that way? I mean, you ever like, how did that happen? How do you take the, the, the incredible name of Jesus and put it in the most irreverent, you know, just ugly way? I mean, you have to understand that's not just accidental, that's demonic, that's satanic, there's a war. It doesn't happen with any of the other false gods. There will be nobody today, as an expletive, will say, oh, Muhammad. Nobody. I mean, nobody. Because it does, you don't do it that way because there's not a war against him. He's a false god. But there is a war against the real God. And so what Satan does is he takes, he encourages, there's this rebelliousness that flows into the heart of man that mocks God. Takes his name, takes his word, and people use God's word in incredibly ugly ways. They'll take chapters out of the Bible or pieces out of it and they'll put it in movies in a way that mocks it and belittles it and makes fun of what God is. You just need to understand that's not accidental. That's a war. That's a war, and it's a rebellion of mankind against God, and it's happening all the time, <laughs> all the time. I could say more, but I don't want to because we need to move past that. So we're watching this guy. He is indulgent. He is blasphemous, and we should even add to it. He's idolatrous. Yet in the midst of all of that, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So he takes and not only is denying God, but he's exalting these false gods. And he's doing so in a way that is just putting that, you know, kind of almost taking the things of God and making them subservient to that, which is horrible, but altogether wrong. Now, it is interesting that even the way it puts it doesn't even name the gods, but puts it as gold and silver, iron and bronze. And I just want to tell you in a very quick way, we are made to worship. And it's been well said that everybody worships something. Even those in our world that say they're not worshiping a God, well, they are. Maybe their God is money. Maybe their God is power. And it's put in this way, and they're taking the things of God and putting it under that. But that's exactly where the horribleness of this is. Here's this man who's living this life just foolishly. And so God gives us this snapshot. And, and because God's doing it, we know that it's an accurate snapshot that you have this picture of this man who's just indulgent, blasphemous, you know, idolatrous in so many ways. And to this man, this incredible event happens, the handwriting on the wall. Now, we're going to read through that just for a quick note of it, but we'll come back and talk about it because we want to continue this perspective of this man from a past tense scene. And so we're going to pick that up in a moment in verse 10, but let's just read through verses 5 through 9 that'll help us see what took place in this moment. So verse 5, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom, because Belshazzar is the second. Verse 8, Now all the, the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Wow. So you watch this whole scene. It's the handwriting on the wall. It's this amazing moment that changes the entire feeling of everything. This party that was taking place now becomes this somber, astonishing, just, wow, what's happening, what's taking place in the midst of this. And now we get another part of the story. Yeah, we pick it up in verse 10, and in this we're going to watch Daniel come on the scene, but once more watch how it kind of plays out. It begins in verse 10 there. It says, The queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet, the banquet hall, and the queen spoke, saying, O king, 
live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in, verse 13, to the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is the one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Wow. Okay, well, we're watching this whole thing play out, and yet what I want you to see in this is this man who is living indulgently, blasphemous me, he's also living ignorantly. He's also living a life that's willfully ignorant. It begins with really an understanding that he has ignored godly influences, that he's ignored those that we just read, that here we have this understanding that when he's facing all of this stuff, the, the, the queen comes in, probably the queen mother, probably not his wife. Quick FYI, in the Aramaic, there's not really a term for grandfather or, or grandmother. And, and so when it talks about Nebuchadnezzar, your father, it's probably grandfather from our understanding. And when it talks about this, this queen mother, it's probably the king, not, not his wife again, but just being the one that would have been over that, being the, the mom of that. And so again, probably in that speaking of it, but again, just helpful. Well, again, leaving that, she comes in and says, you know, there's this guy. There's this man, Daniel. He's one that has been incredibly influential. But what's important for you to understand is that Daniel, he's been serving this entire time. That though he, you know, as he moves out of the, the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, even in this kingdom under Belteshazzar, under Belshazzar, excuse me, he's faithfully serving. He's serving even though he's not acknowledged. Now, we know that for a couple of reasons. We think about it in chapter 8 when we're going to come back into this scene and Daniel's going to give us his own vision. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel. Daniel gets his own vision of things that are happening. It's going to be a pretty shocking vision that's going to leave him kind of astounded. But at the end of the chapter, it goes on to say, And I, Daniel, arose and went about the king's business. He went back to work. He goes back to his job. He goes back to serving right there in the city of Babylon, serving under the administration of Belshazzar. Why again important? Well, again, what's so important in the midst of this is that the king actually knows. I mean, when he speaks to Daniel, and Daniel is finally brought in to him, he just says this in verse 14, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. It's not the first time he's heard of Daniel. He's heard of the account. Certainly, it was a very wild and, and just crazy account of what took place under Nebuchadnezzar. But this is the very first time that Belshazzar has ever met Daniel. He's never sought him. He's never listened to him. He's in his kingdom. He's in his city. I mean, he's over this. Daniel, I mean, how do I say this better? He's incredible. By God's estimation, Daniel is one of the most godly men in history. In Ezekiel, he puts Noah and Job and Daniel in the same category. He says that these three men were there, that in one sense, some of the most godly men in all history. Daniel is one of the most godly influences in history, and Belshazzar has had no time for him. 
Daniel, who was incredibly influential in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to be influential in the days of the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius in chapter 6, people who, you know, esteemed his counsel and listened to him, by this man, he's had absolutely no time for him. And that should just kind of roll over you for a moment. Now, again, maybe you're that person. Maybe you're tuning in like right now, and that would be amazing if God would give us that opportunity to speak to you, and we would be able to tell you, you've probably done the same. You've ignored people that could have spoken well into your life. And there's something foolish about that, about just knowing people who would be a representation of God and you ignoring that. For some of you here this morning, it's you. It's you who've been that Daniel. You have somebody, it's a friend, it's a family member, and they don't ever. (laughs) They've kind of cut you off. Like, they don't, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to listen to you. They don't want to hear your voice. You know, and you're like, well, what? Just this, this idea of God being in you. There are some that just willfully choose to ignore that. That's what Belshazzar is doing. He is willfully ignoring the possibility of somebody just representing God into his world. Add to that. He ignores godly history. Yeah, Daniel speaks into this. You pick it up in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known the interpretation. I'll I'll give it to you. I'll tell you what you want to know. But first, king, I have a story for you. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses." Yeah, Daniel gives him the synopsis version of Daniel chapter 4. He reminds him of everything that had happened. He reminds him of King Nebuchadnezzar's salvation story. He tells him, you know, hey, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how he was exalted in pride, but God humbled him. He allowed him to go through a season where he literally goes crazy for seven seasons, becomes almost like an animal eating ox, but he comes out of that season, and at the end of Daniel 4, for you guys who were again with us last week, he acknowledges God. God God is the real God, and he says, now I humble, I exalt him, and probably saved. I mean, it's an incredible story, and so Daniel's like, I want to tell you this. I'm telling you of what God did there, and then he says this in verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew all this. This wasn't a new story. This is not the first time that Belshazzar heard the account of King Nebuchadnezzar. That should be pretty clear. I mean, it's really probably only been 20 years. I mean, that incredible, life-transforming, kingdom-affecting just thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, it's been a part of their history. All of those in the city knew it. Belshazzar knew this account. He knew the story. He knew what God had done with Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's like, you knew this. You knew this happened. But you didn't learn from it. You you didn't humble yourself. Although you, you, you knew all this, you have not humbled your heart. Wow. Those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it kind of thing. Those who it's like, hey, you, you knew all this. You could have. You should have. You should have paid attention to what God had done in times before you. You could have. You should have listened to the accounts of that. But for Belshazzar, he has ignored it. He's not paid attention to what God has done. He's not paid any attention to. They certainly not applied it. 
So he's ignored it. He's ignored godly people. He's ignored godly history. Or let's get even more clear. He has ignored God. He has kind of refused to acknowledge God's presence. And Daniel calls it out in verse 23. It says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. (laughs) I mean, Daniel just calls it out. He says, you know, you have lifted yourself up. You've, you've, You've been prideful and arrogant. You have lifted yourself up against the God of heaven. You, you've, you've done this in a way that, you know, mocks him and, and, and at the same moment praises all these other gods, that you would be one who looks to these other gods whom he says have no help. She says, you know, they're the gods that don't see, they don't hear. You've looked to all these false gods, but you've absolutely ignored. You've absolutely disregarded God. Now, I love the way Daniel says it. I don't know about you, but I like the way he puts it in words. And so let me put the last part of that verse even up on the screen. As Daniel just calls it out to King Nebuchadnezzar, he just simply tells him, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That is just well said. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about you. I should tell you that's well said. And it's true. God, he's the one who holds your breath and he owns all your ways. There's not anything you have today that didn't come because God in his faithfulness has provided this world. He's created us. He's the sustainer. He's the only source. He's the only life. Everything that we have only flows out of his love and benevolence. We might have abused it or turned it or twisted it, but everything that is is his. God holds all of it in his hands. And yet here's this man who absolutely ignores it. And again, maybe it's you. Maybe it's you in this room. Maybe it's you online right now. That The truth of this is you. You live your life disregarding that everything we have is a gift from God, that God himself is over everything, and how foolish of a place this is to be one that ignores, ignores the creator, ignores God, but that's what Belshazzar is doing. He's living such a foolish way, and I just want you to see it as foolish. I just love the way Daniel says it, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. You have not glorified you have not. You have not recognized it. You've, you've lived this life in a way of ignoring, of, of just pushing all that away. Wow. It's a foolish way to live, and yet that's the snapshot. It's as if, again, before we look at this moment where the handwriting's on the wall, all this kind of shows us of, of the life that led up to this, of a person that was living his life, her life, in a way that is foolish, that's indulgent, blasphemous, idolatrous, and willfully ignoring God. And again, I just need to ask, I don't know if that sounds like you this morning. I don't know if you're in that space, but if you're in that space, we hope you could see it, and that right now God would intersect that, and he would be in a place that would draw you to it, because right here we get to this place where out of this, you know, we're going to watch this place where the handwriting is on the wall. Yeah, that's where it is. Let's go back to verse 5. Let's read again what we saw a moment ago. This incredible account that in the midst of this life, this happens. Pick it up with me, if you will, in verse 5. It says, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Okay, pause. I don't know how good of an imagination you have. I don't know if you can almost just picture this moment. Again, I just need you to see it. This handwriting on the wall, this is a place where God literally is writing this man a note. 
I mean, this is God. This is the hand of God showing up visibly, because it says Belshazzar sees part of the hand and writes on the wall. I mean, that's pretty powerful. That's an amazing moment where God at this moment intersects this life and, and writes on the wall. Now, it's a huge moment. Now, we know that because God's doing it, but we also know that because of the way he responds. That we think of what's happening here and just the seriousness with which he takes this moment and and the things that are happening, we think of how that works. It's seen in his physical just response, right? And again, you can kind of just imagine it. Imagine what it looks like. It says the king's countenance changed. I mean, he was happy and partying and, you know, laughing or whatever before, and now his, his whole countenance changes. His thoughts trouble him. So the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. I don't know why I just find that so fascinating. I just do. It's like you can, just, you can almost just see his whole posture just, I mean, and his knees just begin to knock. I mean, he's incredibly scared. He tries to get people to, you know, sp- speak up into it. And again, it tells us in verse 9, that King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. It's an incredibly sober moment and he feels it. We see that not just because of his physical response, but because of the hugeness of his offer. Again, he looks at the whole thing and he cries aloud in verse 7 to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Understand this. There's not anything more he could do. This is the, I mean, this is the kind of place it's like, I will make you second only to me in, in this kingdom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer to you the most prestigious position. You're going to be the ruler in the kingdom. You'll be the third ruler in all of Babylon. Just the weight of that offer shows us how serious he takes it, how serious he knows this is. This isn't kind of like that passing curiosity, like, I'm curious, you know, like, I'll give a 20 to someone who can figure it out, you know? Like, if you have time, you know, it's like, I'll give you, I'll give you everything. I will make you second only to me. I must know what in the world is this? What's happening? Something here is dramatic. Something in here is worth just the seriousness with which he knows it. This handwriting on the wall grips him in a way that he knows this is a definitive and defining moment. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. He watches all of this. He looks into this. And into that moment, Daniel comes. Oh, again, we read the story. The the queen mother, she comes in and says, hey, there's somebody. (laughs) Like none of these other guys can do it. Kind of like reminding us of Daniel chapter 2 and and how that whole thing happened. And Daniel chapter 4, kind of same kind of thing where none of these other could speak into this. But there is a man who could speak into this. And they bring Daniel. He comes into this moment. You pick it up down there in verse 17. Daniel comes in and it says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, give your rewards to another, yet I will read the writing and make known the interpretation. So why couldn't any of the astrologers, Chaldeans, make it out? Yet when Daniel's going to read it, we go down to verse 24, it says, The fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphorson. That on there on the wall, there's these four words. Daniel makes it known. So why couldn't these others make it known? Can I just quickly give you, I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of interesting thoughts. I mean, maybe it was the way it was laid out. Uh, Maybe it was the way the letters were laid out and they couldn't make out the words. Or maybe, again, it wasn't clear. I mean, these are, again, Aramaic words that Daniel makes them clear, but nobody else is able to either read it or make it known. But Daniel can not because he's smarter, but because God's going to give him that, and he gives it, and he, and he just begins to interpret it for him. Again, just reading it, verse 25. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphorson. This is the interpretation of each word, Daniel says in verse 26. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Mene in Aramaic, it means numbered. And so right there, you have it twice, numbered numbered. 
It is this idea that says God's looked there and He has numbered who you are. He has counted your worth. He's evaluated your person. He's evaluated your value. And you are numbered. You are counted. He says it twice. Numbered, numbered. Tackle, verse 27, says you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tackle literally means just weighed. It's as if you've been put on a scale, and this numbered, we counted who you are, and it's been put there. It's not enough. Your your, your value, your your, your worth is not enough for that. So verse 28, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Perez literally means divided. Now, quick FYI, because somebody's going to be quick, and you're going to be like, wait a second, wait a second. It said you farsen. Mene, mene, tekel, euphorsen. How did we get Perez? Well, simply put, euphorsen is the plural of Perez. Again, it's a, it's a little bit of a different thing, and it just kind of works that way. Just take, my, take the understanding of it. But it literally is the plural of that, which is actually hard to even translate into English, right? I mean, if divide is what you know, Perez mean, it would have to be divide. Like, you know, the multiple division or this place where it's divided. Divided is? Divide, yeah, it doesn't work. But you're divided is plural. I mean, there is a sense that all that you are is taken away, that all that's been given to you has now been dispersed. Your kingdom has come to an end. It's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. Wow. Okay. It's a pretty serious word. I just want you to hear it. I want you to hear this because God's writing it on the wall. Mene, mene, tackle you farson. Numbered, weighed, divided. This is a message for Belshazzar, but we ought not to move past it without understanding. It's a message for everybody because that's true. God is numbering. God is looking at our life and he's counting the value. There's a place of that for every single person. Now, the reality is if you could place it on a scale and look to see who has earned your way to heaven, who is worthy to get there, I hope you understand. All of us have been weighed and found wanting. All of us are in a place that our life isn't enough. That's why we need Jesus. If you know Jesus here this morning, if you know him, he's the only reason you can escape this because if your life is is weighed on the scales, not only does your good works not earn you to heaven, all of your good works are bad. Like everything you are, the Bible tells us, even our good works are tainted by our sin so that if God were to look for something that would say, okay, you're worthy, it would be like, you are found wanting. Like you are not enough. You, this is not, and, and your life is going to be divided. Your life is going to be dispersed, and all that you are is going to go away. Now, if you know Jesus, there's incredible hope there because Jesus, he's placed his weight on that scale. He's placed his weight that, that redeems us so that our sins can be washed away, and we find value that would say, hey, we are now found enough. We are not found wanting. We are found enough because, only because of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, then please understand, this actually applies to you. This is not one of those things like, "Eh, poor Belshazzar, I'm sorry he got to hear that. I'm glad that wasn't a message to me. It is a message to you. You 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 are counted. Your life is numbered. God knows everything about you, every thought you think, every deed you've done, he, your, your life. It, it, Jesus said every word we've spoken will be held accountable. And I'm put on the scales, you are one thing, and, and division is coming. That's a scary thing. That's a scary thing for you. That's a scary thing for Belshazzar. But let's ask a different question. Why? Why is the handwriting on the wall? What is happening here? Why is God saying this now? Why is God allowing this to happen at this particular moment in Belshazzar's life? I'm going to tell you what I think. You might see it differently, but I tell you, I think that God is giving him a chance. I think that this is Belshazzar's last opportunity of grace. I think that God is pursuing Belshazzar just like he pursued Nebuchadnezzar. This whole moment is a moment for Belshazzar to respond to this. This is a moment where he could have heard this, recognized who he was, and that could have been rescued. How does he respond? Well, let's look at it. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command. And they clothed Daniel with purple, 
And they put a chain of gold around his neck, and they made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So how does he respond? He goes back to the way he's been living. He ignores it. I mean, he hears this, you know, you are numbered, you are numbered, you are weighed, you are going to be divided. And what does he do? It's like, well, let's just, okay, make Daniel the third ruler. Let's just go back to the party. Let's go back. I mean, he, he just totally disregards that message. And that's scary. In Proverbs 29, it says, he who is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And that's exactly what happens to Belshazzar. It's like he's known this, he's heard this. He says, if you keep hardening yourself, if you keep resisting and you keep saying no, there comes a moment where it's like, that's it, done. Your life is over and his life is over. That's the, 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 just the seriousness of this moment. That's the seriousness of this space. And I just want to tell you again, I don't think it had to go that way. I think this chapter could have ended the way chapter 4 ended. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Babylon's done. I think no matter what had happened at this moment, the Medo-Persian Empire would still have taken over. It's prophetic. God has spoken it. But what could have happened is that he could have acknowledged the Lord and surrendered his life. He still might have lost it that night. But I find myself thinking of that account of the thief on the cross, you know, where, where there he is. You guys know the story in Luke 23. It's there. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. That is, mocked Jesus. Blasphemy. That's kind of interesting because we're talking about that a little bit this morning. He said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? seeing that you're under the same condemnation. Like, don't you understand? God, I mean, we should fear him. I mean, we're all here dying. And yet as he looks on this, he says, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. So here's this thief on the cross, and he's just recognizing, I deserve this. <laughs> like, like I, I, I brought this on myself. I'm going to die, and I'm going to die in my sin. I deserve what I did. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. And he just looks over at Jesus. And he says, said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you've come into your kingdom. Would you, would you be one that remembers? And Jesus replies to him. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing account. I mean, it does, he, doesn't, he still dies. He still dies on the cross next to Jesus. But you know what? That day when he dies, he goes into heaven. I think that could have happened for Belshazzar. I think Belshazzar could have heard what Daniel was saying and saying, that's me. I'm the one who hasn't humbled myself before God. I'm the one that hasn't learned the lesson. It might not have changed the events of the empire, but honestly, the empire is not as important as the soul. Nations are going away. It's not that people are the things that God is pursuing. Jesus didn't come to save nations. He came to save people. And he's right here about that. And I'm wanting to tell you that's the serious moment of this place where that could have happened, where that can happen. And again, if I can say it clearly, that's what we long to have happen. Again, if I just could say, I, I, I'm just trying to speak to that one person. Maybe you're online. Maybe you're in this room. Maybe you're in our overflow. And all of this today is because God is pursuing you because he's seeking to intersect your life and interrupt you in a way that your life would be made clear and you would see who you are. And by God's grace, we want you to make the choice that the thief on the cross made, that you would humble yourself before God and ask for his salvation. And I can't guarantee that this life is all of a sudden going to go good for you. It still might end, but I can tell you after it, you would be with Jesus in paradise. I mean, that's worth living for. That's where this is. That's what God is doing. And that's what God is wanting to do. And I'm just telling you again, if this is you, if you're the Belshazzar that's been indulgent, blasphemous, idolatrous, willfully ignoring God, then the handwriting on the wall was to wake you up, to stop you in your tracks and give you that moment to turn to him. And if that is you, we long for that. We, we, we just want to tell you, that God is, he, he's that kind of God who is pursuing people. 
that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, and he's doing that today. And if that's you, then today we tell you, don't make this mistake. Don't do what Belshazzar did. What would that look like? It would be like, okay, all of a sudden you feel it. You feel like you're, okay, this is a serious moment. And then all of a sudden he's like, let's just go back to normal. (laughs) Let's just pretend nothing happened. Let's just go back to to, to nothing and and crazy enough just pretend that life is going to go on when it's not. Oh, by God's grace, if that's you this morning, please surrender. Well, again, that's our main pursuit. But before we're done, we want to come back and say one more thing. So we've watched this whole story. We've watched this account. We've seen what's happening. We've watched Belshazzar being pursued. And again, if that's you this morning, we long that you would get saved. But let's again be clear. For many of you this morning, you are children of God. Now, you might have been a Belshazzar. Some of you are like, that was my life, (laughs) and God saved me. I mean, he did something to radically wake me up, and by God's grace, you're here. We're glad. But at the same moment, for some of you, though you're not Belshazzar now, you know somebody who is. That You don't have any doubt. When you're looking at somebody who's indulgent, blasphemous, idolatrous, willfully ignoring God, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, that's (laughs) so-and-so. That's my relative. That's my friend. That's my coworker. That's my neighbor. And if that's true, I just want to take just a quick moment to call you, to, to challenge you to be a Daniel in their lives. That Daniel is one who in this gets to speak into this. Now that's been part of this amazing scene in the, in the whole story of Daniel. That God makes opportunities for this man to speak into crazy people's lives. He spoke into Nebuchadnezzar's life and Nebuchadnezzar got saved. And now he gets to speak into Belshazzar. And to that, I just want to give you a couple quick kind of exhortive thoughts that say that if Daniel could be a good example to you and me, may it be so. First thing I just want to tell you is I long that you would be one that people know that the Spirit of God is within you. I think about it back in verse 11 when the Queen Mother is speaking about it, and she simply says it this way, there is a man in your kingdom and whom is the Spirit of the Holy God. Belshazzar says the same when he ends up talking to Daniel in verse 14. He says, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you. That's a pretty cool description. And if you're a Christian, it's a description of you. The Spirit of God lives inside you. Jesus died, and out of that part of the the, the incredible grace given to us is now the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. He lives inside of us, every single child of God. Every single child of God has that. But here's one of the things. Does anybody around you know it? Does anybody around you say, boy, you know, God's with you. (laughs) God's in you. I mean, I I know whatever happening in your life, I I, I see God. I, I, I know that God is at work in your life. I know that the Spirit of God is there. It ought to be that way. It ought to be that those around you know this of you. Live such a life that that's evident, that people recognize God's presence. Then like Daniel, I just, I love that he was not incredibly motivated by the world's gifts. I just enjoy verse 17. Notice it again. It says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Quick pause. I just like that. He's like, you know, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want what you're offering. I don't want your rewards. I don't want your position. I'm still going to tell you. He says, I will, you know, I will make no, I will read the writing. I will make known the interpretation, but I'm, I, I just don't want what you're giving. Now, there's something in the midst of that that's interesting, and you have to even just maybe understand there's a little bit here in Daniel that Belshazzar is not his favorite person. If you contrast this to the way that he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, incredibly honoring, incredibly just, you know, hey, you are the king, and it's like, I don't, I don't want what you're offering, and I don't want to serve next to you, but I'd be glad to tell you. I'd be glad to tell you. There's something there that I just like about Daniel. Funny thing is he still gets named the third ruler, right? At the end of the chapter, he still gets named, he's the third ruler for like an hour. I don't know that's how long it probably lasted, you know, the kingdom falls right after this, but it just doesn't mean anything to him. Yet he is one that would speak the truth. Yeah, he, Nebuchadnezzar says, could you, could you tell me what this thing says? Could you tell me what the writing is? And Daniel tells him. You go down there in verse 25, he says, this is the inscription that is written. You know, he goes, many, many, tackle you farce, and this is the interpretation of each word. One of the amazing things is that Daniel accurately tells him exactly what's there. Why is that important? Well, sometimes. 
other people, first service people. You guys are good, right? So we're just going to, but it's just helpful to say it here. Sometimes we have a, a habit of maybe watering it down a little bit, maybe not telling people like the actual, you know, truth. Sometimes, you know, how easy it would have been for Daniel to have been like, well, you know, that's God's hand, and it's just kind of a reminder that he's God, he loves you, and uh, you should do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, instead of being able to say, no, you know what this means? You've been numbered, you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, you're going to die. I mean, this is a bad story for you, and it ends badly, and it's, but it was the absolute clear truth. Sometimes. We can, we can neglect doing that. Sometimes we can neglect being those who would just say exactly the truth. Boy, it was a bunch of years ago, so definitely, you know, it's not been the only time, but I, it, one of the first times I can really remember it as a fairly young believer working back in Albuquerque at Grand Central, which was kind of like pre-Walmart days, and, and I was working there, and I was, you know, kind of trying to live for God. I remember this employee coming up to me, this girl, and we had conversations about God a little bit, and then she just asked me, so I don't know Jesus. What's going to happen to me? I, I, you know, I don't believe in Jesus, so what's gonna, you know, what happens to me when I die? Now, I can remember that. I can remember, I can remember to this day just feeling like, okay, you know, like, you know, so easy to want to say something different, but I remember just telling her, well, you know, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell forever and ever. Like, your sins are going to be held accountable, and you're, you're, it didn't go well, by the way. She cried. I was like, I actually, it was, but it's like, hey, this one, I was like, this is the truth. I mean, but I find myself thinking back to that and then thinking, I'm so glad I spoke it then, and then sometimes I wonder, have at other times I not been so faithful? I mean, just to be in the space of saying, God, if you give me an opportunity, I'll tell people the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard, but God is looking for us if God creates the opportunity. Now, Daniel didn't create the opportunity. They sought him out. <laughs> they, they went and found him and knocked on his door and said, hey, come talk to the king. Could you understand? He's like, well, I'll tell you. If you want to know what's happening, I'll be glad to tell you. But at the same moment, understand this, that Daniel didn't just tell him the truth. He, he took that opportunity to share in love, to share more, to seek Belshazzar's soul. I mean, he gets this opportunity. I mean, again, I just want you to catch it. They're like, Daniel, tell us what this writing means. And Daniel's like, I'd be glad to tell you what that means. But before I do that, can I just talk to you for a moment? Do you remember what happened with Nebuchadnezzar? Do you remember how God worked in his life and humbled him? You, you've known that, but you haven't lived your life that way. Instead, you've lived a life mocking him. The God who holds your life in his hands, you have, you have disregarded. That's all extra. That was never asked of Daniel, but Daniel has seized this opportunity to share as much as he can, to, to speak into that, and I find that to be both encouraging and challenging. Here's the deal. Maybe for me, I'm a little bit concerned that sometimes either I might not speak the truth when I get that opportunity, or I'll just give the bare minimum. Like, yeah, you're going to die and go to hell. Okay, bye. You know, it's like, just, you know, end of story, you know, end of, instead of saying, I'm so glad you're asking. Before I answer that question, can I talk to you for a few minutes? Can I, can I just express to you the entire, I mean, I, I want to I seize those opportunities to do what the Bible said, which is we are to speak the truth in love. And I think Daniel is an incredible example of a man who did this. Doesn't mean that everybody responded. Nebuchadnezzar did. Belshazzar doesn't. But Daniel's faithful. And I just want to speak to you this morning who are followers of Jesus and say, that's a good example. I just want to dare you to be like that in this world, to be a part of God's pursuit, because God is pursuing people. God is seeking to save. And again, if that's you this morning, we hope it's happening. But for the rest of us, let's be a part of it. That's where we're going to close, so you can take your Bibles, notebooks, close them now if you haven't already done so, and we want to just take a moment now to pray. Again, if this is you, it's, if you're the Belshazzar that God is seeking, it's a good day to humble yourself. It's a good day right now to give your life to Him. We hope you do. If you're a Daniel that God is positioning to speak into other people's lives, may you, like Daniel, be one that speaks faithfully. So would you take a moment, I'll do the same thing, we're just going to take a moment quietly just for each of us to pray wherever that is and talk to God about what he's doing in our lives. You take a quiet moment and do that, I'll do the same, and we'll close in worship in just a moment.
Jesus, we think of you and just what you tell us in the Gospels, that you are the one that came to seek and to save that which is lost. God, thank you that you do that. Thank you that for many of us, that's exactly what happened. We were numbered and weighed and wanting, and you saved us. God, I pray for those that are here or watching online, that that's not where they are. I thank you that you're pursuing them, and that maybe even today, for one person, this is being said to draw their life, to interrupt them and bring them to surrender, to give their life to you. And I pray for that person that they would make the choice that the thief on the cross made to humble themselves before you and be saved and not make the foolish choice just to ignore this that Belshazzar made. God, would you rescue right now these that don't know you? Would you draw them to you? Leaving them in your hand, I do pray for us who know you that we would walk in the opportunities that you give us faithfully, that like Daniel, we would speak boldly, truthfully, and yet marked with love, pursuing, reasoning, seeking to appeal to people to give their lives to you. God, would you work that in us and make us such a people? I pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boy, if you have questions, if that's you that God is pursuing, please reach out to us. We'd love to be a part of that. Love to be a part of what God is doing in your life. But right now, let's close in worship. Why don't you stand? We're going to close in a final worship song, longing that God would meet us in his ways. And yet right now, I just want to bless you in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face 